Chapter 17, Part 2 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 17, Part 2 Questions Regarding the Aramaic Language, Rabbinic Parallels, and Buddhistic Influence. Broadly speaking, therefore, the Son of Man problem is both historically solvable and has been solved. The authentic passages are those in which the expression is used in that apocalyptic sense which goes back to Daniel. But we have to distinguish two different uses of the term according to the degree of knowledge assumed in the hearers. If the secret of Jesus is unknown to them, then in that case they understand simply that Jesus is speaking of the Son of Man and his coming without having any suspicion that he and the Son of Man have any connection. It would be thus, for instance, when in sending out the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 verse 23, or when he pictured the judgment which the Son of Man would hold, from Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46, if we may imagine it to have been spoken to the people at Jerusalem. Or, on the other hand, the secret is known to the hearers, in that case, they understand that the term Son of Man points to the position to which he himself is to be exalted when the present era passes into the age to come. It was thus, no doubt, in the case of the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and of the high priest to whom Jesus, after answering his demand with a simple yea, from Mark chapter 14, verse 62, goes on immediately to speak of the exaltation of the Son of Man to the right hand of God, and of his coming upon the clouds of heaven. Jesus did not, therefore, veil his messiahship by using the expression Son of Man, much less did he transform it, but he used the expression to refer, in the only possible way, to his messianic office as destined to be realized at his coming, and did so in such a manner that only the initiated understood that he was speaking of his own coming while others understood him as referring to the coming of a son of man who was other than himself. The passages where the title has not this apocalyptic reference, or where, previous to the incident at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus, in speaking to the disciples, equates the son of man with his own ego, are to be explained as of literary origin. This set of secondary occurrences of the title has nothing to do with early church theology. It is merely a question of phenomena of translation and tradition. In the saying about the Sabbath, in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, and perhaps also in the saying about the right to forgive sins, in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Son of Man doubtless stood in the original in the general sense of man, but was later, certainly by our evangelists, understood as referring to Jesus as the Son of Man. In other passages, tradition following the analogy of those passages in which the title is authentic, put in place of the simple I, expressed in the Aramaic by the man, the self-designation son of man, as we can clearly show by comparing Matthew chapter 16 verse 13, who do men say that the son of man is, with Mark chapter 8 verse 27, who do men say that I am. Three passages call for special discussion. In the statement that a man may be forgiven for blasphemy against the Son of Man, 
but not for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, the Son of Man may be authentic. But of course it would not, even in that case, give any hint that Son of Man designates the Messiah in his humiliation, as Dalman wished to infer from the passage, but would mean that Jesus was speaking of the Son of Man, here as elsewhere, in the third person, without reference to himself, and was thinking of a contemptuous denial of the parousia, such as might have been uttered by a Sadducee. But if we take into account the parallel in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, where blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is spoken of without any mention of blasphemy against the Son of Man, it seems more natural to take the mention of the Son of Man as a secondary interpolation, derived from the same line of tradition, perhaps from the same hand as the Son of Man, in the question to the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. The two other sayings, the one about the Son of Man who hath not where to lay his head, from Matthew chapter 8 verse 20, and that about the Son of Man who must submit to the reproach of being a glutton and a wine-bibber, from Matthew chapter 11 verse 19, belong together. If we assume it to be possible, in conformity with the saying about the purpose of the parables, in Mark chapter 4 verses 11 and 12, that Jesus sometimes spoke in words which he did not intend to be understood, we may, if we are unwilling to accept the supposition of a later paraphrasis for the ego, which would certainly be the most natural explanation, recognize in these sayings two obscure declarations regarding the Son of Man. They would then be supposed to have meant in the original form, which is no longer clearly recognizable, that the Son of Man would in some way justify the conduct of Jesus of Nazareth. But the way in which this idea is expressed was not such as to make it easy for the hearers to identify him with the Son of Man. Moreover, it was for them a conception impossible to realize, since Jesus was a natural, and the Son of Man a supernatural being, and the eschatological scheme of things had not provided for a man who, at the end of the existing era, should hint to others that at the great transformation of all things he would be manifested as the Son of Man. This case presented itself only in the course of history, and it created a preparatory stage of eschatology which does not answer to any traditional scheme. The act of the self-consciousness of Jesus, by which he recognized himself in his earthly existence as the future Messiah, is the act in which eschatology supremely affirms itself. At the same time, since it brings spiritually that which is to come into the unaltered present, into the existing era, it is the end of eschatology. For it is its spiritualization a spiritualization of which the ultimate consequence was to be that all its supersensuous elements were to be realized only spiritually in the present earthly conditions, and all that is affirmed as supersensuous in the transcendental sense was to be regarded as only the ruined remains of an eschatological worldview. The messianic secret of Jesus is the basis of Christianity, since it involves the denationalizing and the spiritualization of Jewish eschatology. Yet more, it is the primal fact, the starting point, of a process which manifests itself, indeed, in Christianity, but cannot fully work itself out even here, of a movement in the direction of inwardness 
which brings all religious magnitudes into the one individual spiritual present, and which Christian dogmatic has not ventured to carry to its completion. The messianic consciousness of the uniquely great man of Nazareth sets up a struggle between the present and the beyond, and introduces that resolute absorption of the beyond by the present, which, in looking back, we recognize as the history of Christianity, and of which we are conscious in ourselves as the essence of religious progress and experience, a process of which the end is not yet in sight. In this sense, Jesus did accept the world, and did stand in conflict with Judaism. Protestantism was a step, a step on which hung weighty consequences, in the progress of that acceptance of the world, which was constantly developing itself from within. By a mighty revolution which was in harmony with the spirit of that great primal act of the consciousness of Jesus, though in opposition to some of the most certain of his sayings, ethics became world-accepting. But it will be a mightier revolution still, when the last remaining ruins of the supersensuous, otherworldly system of thought are swept away in order to clear the site for a new spiritual, purely real and present world. All the inconsistent compromises and constructions of modern theology are merely an attempt to stave off the final expulsion of eschatology from religion, an inevitable but a hopeless attempt. That proleptic messianic consciousness of Jesus, which was in reality the only possible actualization of the messianic idea, carries these consequences with it inexorably and unfailingly. At that last cry upon the cross, the whole eschatological supersensuous world fell in upon itself in ruins, and there remained as a spiritual reality only that present spiritual world, bound as it is to sense, which Jesus, by his all-powerful word, had called into being within the world which he condemned. That last cry, with its despairing abandonment of the eschatological future, is his real acceptance of the world. The Son of Man was buried in the ruins of the falling eschatological world. There remained alive only Jesus the Man. Thus, these two Aramaic synonyms include in themselves, as in a symbol of reality, all that was to come. If theology has found it so hard a task to arrive at an historical comprehension of the secret of this self-designation, this is due to the fact that the question is not a purely historical one. In this word there lies the transformation of a whole system of thought, the inexorable consequence of the elimination of eschatology from religion. It was only in this future form, not as actual, that Jesus spoke of his messiahship. Modern theology keeps on endeavoring to discover in the title of Son of Man, which is bound up with the future, a humanized present messiahship. It does so in the conviction that the recognition of a purely future reference in the messianic consciousness of Jesus would lead, in the last result, to a modification of the historic basis of our faith, which has itself become historical, and therefore true and self-justifying. The recognition of the claims of eschatology signifies for our dogmatic a burning of the boats by which it felt itself able to return at any moment from the time of Jesus direct to the present. One point that is worthy of notice in this connection is the trustworthiness of the tradition. 
the evangelists, writing in Greek, in the Greek-speaking early church, can hardly have retained an understanding of the purely eschatological character of that self-designation of Jesus. It had become for them merely an indirect method of self-designation. And nevertheless, the evangelists, especially Mark, record the sayings of Jesus in such a way that the original significance and application of the designation in his mouth is still clearly recognizable, and we are able to determine with certainty the isolated cases in which this self-designation in his discourses is of a secondary origin. Thus, the use of the term son of man, which, if we admitted the sweeping proposal of Lietzmann and Wellhausen, to cancel it everywhere as an interpolation of Greek early church theology, would throw doubt on the whole of the gospel tradition, becomes a proof of the certainty and trustworthiness of that tradition. We may, in fact, say that the progressive recognition of the eschatological character of the teaching and action of Jesus carries with it a progressive justification of the gospel tradition. A series of passages and discourses which had been endangered because, from the modern theological point of view which had been made the criterion of the tradition, they appeared to be without meaning, are now secured. The stone which the critics rejected has become the cornerstone of the tradition. If Aramaic scholarship appears in regard to the Son of Man question among the opponents of the thoroughgoing eschatological view, it takes no other position in connection with the retranslations and the application of illustrative parallels from the rabbinic literature. In looking at the earlier works in this department, one is struck with the smallness of the result in proportion to the labor expended. The names that call for mention here are those of John Lightfoot, Christian Schachten, Johann Muschen, J. J. Wittstein, F. Nork, Franz Dielich, Karl Siegfried, and A. Wunschler. But even a work like F. Weber's System der Alt-Synagogelen Palestinensischen Theologie, which does not confine itself to single sayings and thoughts, but aims at exhibiting the rabbinic system of thought as a whole, throws, in the main, but little light on the thoughts of Jesus. The rabbinic parables supply, according to Ulicker, but little of value for the explanation of the parables of Jesus. In this method of discourse, Jesus is so preeminently original that any other productions of the Jewish parabolic literature are like stunted undergrowth beside a great tree, though that has not prevented his originality from being challenged in this very department, both in earlier times and at the present. As early as 1648, Robert Sherringham of Cambridge suggested that the parables in Matthew chapter 20 verse 1 and following, chapter 25 verse 1 and following, and Luke chapter 16 were derived from Talmudic sources, an opinion against which J. B. Karpzolf the Younger raised a protest. In 1839, F. Nork asserted in his work on Rabbinic Sources and Parallels for the New Testament Writings, that the best thoughts in the discourses of Jesus are to be attributed to his Jewish teachers. In 1880, the Dutch rabbi T. Tall maintained the thesis that the parables of the New Testament are all borrowed from the Talmud. Theories of this kind cannot be refuted, because they lack the foundation necessary to any theory which is to be capable of being rationally discussed, that of plain common sense. 
we possess however really scientific attempts to define more closely the thoughts of jesus by the aid of the rabbinic language and rabbinic ideas in the works of arnold meyer and dahlmann it cannot indeed be said that the obscure sayings which form the problem of present-day exegesis are in all cases made clearer by them much as we may admire the comprehensive knowledge of these scholars sometimes indeed they become more obscure than ever according to meyer for instance the question of jesus whether his disciples can drink of his cup and be baptized with his baptism means if put back into aramaic can you drink as bitter a drink as i can you eat as sharply salted meat as i nor does dolman's aramaic retranslation help us much with the saying about the violent who take the kingdom of heaven by force according to him it is not spoken of the faithful but of the rulers of this world and refers to the epoch of the divine rule which has been introduced by the imprisonment of the baptist no one can violently possess himself of the divine reign and jesus can therefore only mean that violence is done to it in the person of its subjects on this it must be remarked that if the saying really means this it is about as appropriate to its setting as a rock in the sky jesus is not speaking of the imprisonment of the baptist by the days of john the baptist he means the time of his public ministry it is equally open to question whether in putting that crucial question regarding the messiah in mark chapter twelve verse thirty seven he really intended to show as dalman thinks quote, that physical descent from david was not of decisive importance it did not belong to the essence of the messiahship Close quote. but a point in regard to which dalman's remarks are of great value for the reconstruction of the life of jesus is the entry into Jerusalem. Dalman thinks that the simple Hosanna, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, from Mark chapter 11 verse 9, was what the people really shouted in acclamation, and that the additional words in Mark and Matthew are simply an interpretive expansion. This acclamation did not itself contain any messianic reference. This explains, quote, why the entry into Jerusalem was not made a count in the charge urged against him before Pilate. The events of Palm Sunday only received their distinctively messianic color later. It was not the Messiah, but the prophet and wonder-worker of Galilee, whom the people hailed with rejoicing and accompanied with invocations of blessing. Generally speaking, the value of Dalman's work lies less in the solutions which it offers than in the problems which it raises by its very thorough discussions it challenges historical theology to test its most cherished assumptions regarding the teaching of jesus and make sure whether they are really so certain and self-evident thus in opposition to surer he denies that the thought of the pre-existence in heaven of all the good things belonging to the kingdom of god was at all generally current in the late jewish world of ideas and thinks that the occasional references to a pre-existing jerusalem which shall finally be brought down to the earth do not suffice to establish the theory similarly he thinks it doubtful whether jesus used the term this world or this age the world or age to come in the eschatological sense which is generally attached to them and doubts on linguistic grounds 
whether they could have been used at all. Even the use of the Hebrew aulam for world cannot be proved. In the pre-Christian period, there is much reason to doubt its occurrence, though in later Jewish literature it is frequent. The expression en te palagenesia in Matthew chapter 19 verse 28 is specifically Greek and cannot be reproduced in either Hebrew or Aramaic. It is very strange that the use which Jesus makes of Amen is unknown in the whole of Jewish literature. According to the proper idiom of the language, the Hebrew Amen is never used to emphasize one's own speech, but always with reference to the speech, prayer, benediction, oath, or curse of another. Close quote. Jesus, therefore, if he used the expression in this sense, must have given it a new meaning as a formula of asservation, in place of the oath which he forbade. All these acute observations are marked by the general tendency which was observable in the interpretation of the term son of man, that is, by the endeavor so to weaken down the eschatological conceptions of the kingdom and the Messiah, that the hypothesis of a making present and spiritualizing of these conceptions in the teaching of Jesus might appear inherently and linguistically possible and natural. The polemic against the pre-existing realities of the kingdom of God is intended to show that for Jesus the reign of God is a present benefit which can be sought after, given, possessed, and taken. Even before the time of Jesus, according to Dalman, a tendency had shown itself to lay less emphasis, in connection with the hope of the future, upon the national Jewish element. Jesus forced this element still farther into the background, and gave a more decided prominence to the purely religious element. Quote, For him, the reign of God was the divine power, which from this time onward was steadily to carry forward the renewal of the world, and also the renewed world into which men shall one day enter, which even now offers itself, and therefore can be grasped and received as a present good. The supernatural coming of the kingdom is only the final stage of the coming which is now being inwardly spiritually brought about by the preaching of Jesus. Though he may perhaps have spoken of this world and the world to come, these expressions had in use of them no very special importance. It is for him less a question of an antithesis between then and now than an establishing a connection between them by which the transition from one to the other is to be effected. It is the same in regard to Jesus' consciousness of his messiahship, says Dalman, quote, In Jesus' view, the period before the commencement of the reign of God was organically connected with the actual period of his reign. He was the Messiah because he knew himself to stand in a unique ethico-religious relation to God. His Messiahship was not something wholly incomprehensible to those about him. If redemption was regarded as being close at hand, the Messiah must be assumed to be in some sense already present. Therefore, Jesus is both directly and indirectly spoken of as Messiah. Thus, the most important work in the department of Aramaic scholarship shows clearly the anti-eschatological tendency which characterized it from the beginning. The work of Lietzmann, Meyer, Wellhausen, and Dahlmann 
forms a distinct episode in the general resistance to eschatology that aramaic scholarship should have taken up a hostile attitude towards the eschatological system of thought of jesus lies in the nature of things the thoughts which it takes as its standard of comparison were only reduced to writing long after the period of jesus and moreover in a lifeless and distorted form at a time when the apocalyptic temper no longer existed as the living counterpoise to the legal righteousness and this legal righteousness had allowed only so much of apocalyptic to survive as could be brought into direct connection with it in fact the distance between jesus's world of thought and this form of judaism is as great as that which separates it from modern ideas thus in dalman modernizing tendencies and aramaic scholarship were able to combine in conducting a criticism of the eschatology in the teaching of jesus in which the modern man thought the thoughts and the expert in aramaic formulated and supported them yet without being able in the end to make any impression upon the well-rounded whole formed by jesus's eschatological preaching of the kingdom whether aramaic scholarship will contribute to the investigation of the life and teaching of jesus along other lines and in a direct and positive fashion only the future can show but certainly if theologians will give heed to the question marks so acutely placed by dalman and recognize it as one of their first duties to test carefully whether a thought or a connection of thought is linguistically or inherently greek and only greek in character they will derive a notable advantage from what has already been done in the department of aramaic study but if the service rendered by aramaic studies has been hitherto mainly indirect no success whatever has attended or seems likely to attend the attempt to apply buddhist ideas to the explanation of the thoughts of jesus it could only indeed appear to have some prospect of success if we could make up our minds to follow the example of the author of one of the most recent of fictitious lives of jesus in putting jesus to school to the buddhist priests in which case the six years which monsieur nicolas notowich allots to this purpose would certainly be none too much for the completion of the course if imagine boggles at this there remains no possibility of showing that buddhist ideas exercised any direct influence upon jesus that buddhism may have had some kind of influence upon late judaism and thus indirectly upon jesus is not inherently impossible if we are prepared to recognize buddhist influence on the babylonian and persian civilizations but it is unproved unprovable and unthinkable that jesus derived the suggestion of the new and creative ideas which emerge in his teaching from buddhism the most that can be done in this direction is to point to certain analogies for the parables of jesus buddhist parables were suggested by renan and havet how little these analogies mean in the eyes of a cautious observer is evident from the attitude which max muller took up towards the question he remarks in one passage quote, that there are startling coincidences between buddhism and christianity cannot be denied and it must likewise be admitted that buddhism existed at least four hundred years before christianity i go even further and say that i should be extremely grateful if anybody would point out to me the historical channels through which buddhism had influenced early christianity 
I have been looking for such channels all my life, but hitherto I have found none. What I have found is that for some of the most startling coincidences there are historical antecedents on both sides, and, if we once know these antecedents, the coincidences become far less startling. Close quote. A year before Max Muller formulated his impression in these terms, Rudolf Seidel had endeavored to explain the analogies which had been noticed by supposing Christianity to have been influenced by Buddhism. He distinguishes three distinct classes of analogies. 1. Those of which the points of resemblance can without difficulty be explained as due to the influence of similar sources and motives in the two cases. 2. Those which show a so special and unexpected agreement that it appears artificial to explain it from the action of similar causes, and the dependence of one upon the other commends itself as the most natural explanation. 3. Those in which there exists a reason for the occurrence of the idea only within the sphere of one of the two religions, or in which at least it can very much more easily be conceived as originating within the one than within the other so that the inexplicability of the phenomenon within the one domain gives ground for seeking its source within the other. This last class demands a literary explanation of the analogy. Seidel therefore postulates, alongside of primitive forms of Matthew and Luke, a third source, quote, a poetic apocalyptic gospel of very early date, which fitted its Christian material into the frame of a Buddhist type of gospel transforming, purifying, and ennobling the material taken from the foreign but related literature by a kind of rebirth inspired by the Christian spirit. Matthew and Luke, especially Luke, follow this poetic gospel up to the point where historic sources become more abundant, and the primitive form of Mark begins to dominate their narrative. But even in later parts, the influence of this poetical source, which, as an independent document, was subsequently lost, continued to make itself felt. The strongest point of support for this hypothesis, if a mere conjecture can be described as such, is found by Seidel in the introductory narratives in Luke. Now it is not inherently impossible that Buddhist legends, which in one form or another were widely current in the East, may have contributed, more or less, to the formulation of the mythical preliminary history. Who knows the laws of the formation of legend? Who can follow the course of the wind which carries the seed over land and sea? But in general, it may be said that Seidel actually refutes the hypothesis which he is defending. If the material which he brings forward is all that there is to suggest a relation between Buddhism and Christianity, we are justified in waiting until new discoveries are made in that quarter before asserting the necessity of a Buddhist primitive gospel. That will not prevent a succession of theosophic lives of Jesus from finding their account in Seidel's classical work. Seidel indeed delivered himself into their hands because he did not entirely avoid the rash assumption of theosophic historical science that Jewish eschatology can be equated with Buddhistic. Edward von Hartmann, in the second edition of his work, The Christianity of the New Testament, roundly asserts that there can be no question of any relation of Jesus to Buddha, nor of any indebtedness either in his teaching or in the later molding of the story of his life, 
but only of a parallel formation of myth. End of chapter 17